It's Thursday, April 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. If you have money invested in cryptocurrency, you most likely had a good Wednesday. Coinbase, the largest exchange for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, became the first major crypto company to go public, and it surged in its first day in the stock market. With Coinbase going public, it pushes cryptocurrency into the mainstream as something to seriously invest in. Paul Vigna, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to break it down. Next, we are learning a little more about the investigation into Representative Matt Gates and a trip he took to the Bahamas with some associates and at least five young women. This trip is a key focus of the DOJ investigation, and we also learned that Matt Gates's phone was seized last winter when federal agents were looking into him. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for new details. Finally, the CDC is studying cases of COVID vaccine breakthroughs. There have been hundreds of cases reported in Florida, Michigan, and Washington about people getting infected with coronavirus after being fully vaccinated. Experts say that this is expected as no vaccine provides 100% coverage, but are also looking into whether these are cases of being exposed to high levels of the virus or variants. Rob Stein, health correspondent at NPR, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So as Bitcoin has grown, as the, the price over the last six, eight months has, has gone up just exponentially, Coinbase has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of new users, and that's translated into a lot of revenue and really large profits for them. Joining us now is Paul Vigna, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Paul. I am very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. There's a, a new listing out there for Coinbase on the uh, that's uh, started publicly trading on Wednesday. It's drawn renewed attention to cryptocurrencies. And if you have uh, you know any money in, in anything, really, Bitcoin, Ethereum, even Dogecoin got a, a big bump. You know, you woke up to some uh, increased numbers for your portfolio there. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about Coinbase. It's the first major crypto company to go public. And uh, it's just basically an exchange for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but it came out pretty big on Wednesday. Right. Yeah. Look, it came out. It came out really big. It's it's in the afternoon. It came off the highs. But Coinbase is one of the best known names in the the sector, in the crypto sector. They're a big exchange based here in the United States. And from the start, they've kind of been a firm that was very much focused on working with banks, working with regulators, trying to make Bitcoin accessible to mainstream users. In the early days of crypto, that was really a kind of a, a big difference between them and most of the other exchanges. And they grew and grew with that goal in mind, right? We're going to make Bitcoin accessible to the mainstream. So for a lot of people who get interested in Bitcoin, they say, oh, how do I get Bitcoin? People say, go to Coinbase. And they do. And it's, it's a, an easy platform to use. You know, you go there, you sign up, you have to give them some identifying information, you link your bank account to it so that you can fund your, your balance, and you can buy and sell Bitcoin. So as Bitcoin has grown, as the, the price over the last six, eight months has, has gone up just exponentially, Coinbase has gotten a lot of attention and a lot of new users, and that's translated into a lot of revenue and really large profits for them. And it seemed natural that eventually they were going to tap the public markets. And that is what happened today. Coinbase, as you mentioned in some of your articles, they're uh, mostly tied to Bitcoin and the ups and downs that they go through. But they do exchanges in, in a lot of other cryptocurrencies as well. They make a market in about 50 cryptocurrencies. Obviously, Bitcoin is the biggest one of those. 
But like you said, there are other ones. And what's interesting is that while their revenue is so closely tied to trading, most of it's from transaction fees, they do kind of see that they need to expand from that. And they're trying to build out sort of broad suite, you would say, of financial services. They want to come up with all kinds of products. They want people to come in and start with trading, but then they want to come up with other financial products to sell them, the way any kind of brokerage house would, really, uh, or any kind of large bank would. They're not a bank, I should point that out. But, I mean, that's what they're kind of going for. They're kind of trying to become this this sort of all-one-stop shop for anything you'd want to do related to cryptocurrencies. How has cryptocurrency and Bitcoin been doing throughout the pandemic? We've been seeing a ton of stories about, you know, record highs. Bitcoin hit a high on Wednesday when Coinbase went public. So they've been doing pretty well. They look, Bitcoin's been doing great. There were two things really that happened is, is one, during the pandemic, like a lot of things, people were stuck at home and they were looking for things to do online. They were bored. And a lot of people just started trading Bitcoin. Robinhood, PayPal, some other of the online trading apps opened up their platforms to trading crypto. So a lot of people got involved. The other thing was that you've had a lot of institutional money come in, and that sort of signaled that this is an okay arena for people to play in. Not that it isn't speculative and not that you can't lose money in it, but just that it's not exactly this anarchistic, kill the bankers kind of world, that it is something more responsible Still, I have to point out, very speculative, very, you know, high chance that you could lose money if you get to, you know, if you play it wrong. But so you, you had this sort of institutional nest signal that it's OK. So you had institutional money coming in, you had retail money coming in. So you had a lot of money coming in at a time where people were looking for things to do. And that kind of drove this big surge in what is and has been a small market when you compare it to the rest of the capital markets. It's gotten bigger over the last year, obviously, but it's still a relatively small market. So a small market, a lot of people come in and it just drove the price up. And, and that just becomes this sort of self-sustaining cycle. The higher the price goes, the more people get interested, the more people come in, the more that drives the price. And it's, you know, it just builds on itself. So final thing, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Bitcoin, Dogecoin rallied by a bunch, even though Coinbase doesn't offer, you know, it's not trading in it. Uh, but they still got a bump. Everything really kind of got a bump today. So other than Coinbase going public and, you know, a lot more people maybe having some access to it, you know, what changes right now for the cryptocurrency market? When you think about crypto, you have to realize that so much of it is driven by momentum and sentiment. So the Coinbase listing, now that Coinbase is part of the public market, and just the hype alone around that and the signal that it sends to people that, this is part of the mainstream. This is part of the real world, quote unquote. I'm using air quotes. You can't see it, but I'm using it. Yeah. That, you know, this is not just some weird anarchist project. This is an actual asset class. This is something you can invest in. You know, that the message that this listing sends just bolsters that momentum and that sentiment. Yeah. Doesn't mean that this is never going to turn. And Bitcoin has a very well-defined history of going up by quite a lot and then coming down by quite a lot. So it can happen again. But this listing and this moment just sort of it really feeds into that momentum and that sentiment driven trading. Paul Vigna, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I won't be intimidated by a lying media and I won't be extorted by a former DOJ officials and the crooks he is working with, the truth will prevail. Joining us now is Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Mark. 
Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The investigation into Representative Matt Gates continues. He hasn't been charged with any crime just yet, but still things don't seem to be uh, looking very good for him. We're getting some more details about a, a trip that he took to the Bahamas, which kind of is at the center of the investigation, at least relating to him. Uh, so, Mark, uh, help us with some details. What are we learning about this? We're learning that in September of 2018, Matt Gates, uh, two friends of his who are men, and at least five women flew to the Bahamas, a resort. We don't know which island. We don't know which resort. And they came on two separate planes, two separate private planes and a commercial plane. Matt Gates apparently flew commercial. And this was just kind of a bash where there were lots of young women and older men, uh, not ancient men, but older men. And federal prosecutors are looking into this because there's some suspicion that some of the women might have been escorts, that money might have changed hands in return for sex. That is, there might have been some sort of prostitution activity, and it might have violated this old law called the Mann Act, where it's essentially illegal to transport someone across state lines for purposes of engaging in prostitution. So that's what the federal prosecutors are looking at on the Bahamas side of things, on the more state side of things and the more serious charge is whether the congressman had had sex with a minor, a 17-year-old girl, who had allegedly been sex trafficked by a friend and ally of the congressman, of Matt Gates, who at the time was a county tax collector in Florida, a guy named Joel Greenberg. Joel Greenberg is indicted for that, as well as a host of other crimes. Now, investigators are looking into whether Gates had had sexual relations with her or had furthered this alleged sex trafficking with Joel Greenberg before the young woman or before the teen turned 18. Most records indicate that she turned 18 in late December of 2017. So those are kind of the, the two separate silos. Now, the connection between the two outside of Matt Gates is the young woman, the teen at the time. She not only is involved or allegedly involved in the sex trafficking case that Greenberg faces that they're also investigating with Gates. When she was 18, According to our sources, she also was one of the five women who went along on this trip to the Bahamas, where it sounds like it was kind of a, a sex-filled bash, a party. And that's kind of the common tie between those two alleged crimes, if indeed they are crimes. So the thinking is she was already 18 for this trip, but they probably had a relationship before that. that they might have, yes. Right. From my reading of this, too, uh, you know, a lot of these women that he might have come in contact with, Representative Matt Gates and his associate Joel Greenberg, a lot of it came through uh, this kind of sugar daddy website, seekingarrangement.com. Correct. As you said, it's a sugar daddy website. From what we gather and from what's been told is Greenberg was kind of a heavy user of it or a frequent sugar daddy. And he was the one who would kind of meet the women and draw them into the orbit. And then they would wind up meeting the congressman. Now, understand at the time, you know, we're talking 2017, 2018, Matt Gates was becoming a, a nationally recognized figure in Republican politics. He was on TV all the time. The president was name-checking him. He had the president's ear. Joel Greenberg was just the Seminole County tax collector in Florida, right? So there was much more of a, an imbalance of power, or Matt Gates was kind of the alpha dog in that relationship between him and Greenberg. Right. So allegedly, Greenberg kind of worshipped him, looked up to him, and wanted to get the congressman what he wanted, which were uh, beautiful young women. I know uh, people in Matt Gates' orbit right now are pretty concerned because Joel Greenberg might be close to cutting some type of plea deal, something like that, in which, uh, you know, to lessen his sentence, he's facing like 33 federal charges with regards to all this. You know, he, he's hoping to get his sentence reduced. Uh, he's in jail right now, so he really wants to get some type of deal done. 
So Matt Gates, uh, you know, is kind of uh, concerned about what that could lead to. Of course. Now, Gates does not have a lot of friends. He does not have a lot of allies. And he sort of bragged about that. So this will not be any surprise when I say that this guy didn't go to Congress to make friends. But the reality is, is he's been very consistent on this. Ever since the allegations anonymous uh, first surfaced, he said two things. I never had sex with a 17-year-old, except when I was 17. And Matt Gates said uh, he never paid for or engaged in prostitution. So he's been consistent throughout. Now, that leaves open the door for all of these other arrangements, which, as you point out, he has said, but he's helped take care of women, etc. So, so far, if anyone's looking to bust Matt Gates in an inconsistency in what he said then and the facts currently and how they square, so far, they've lined up. That doesn't say he's innocent, but the real question here is, what does this woman, now 21, at the center of this case say? What is she saying to prosecutors, if anything? We don't know. And that's really, by and large, heavily what this case is going to revolve around. Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. There have been hundreds of cases reported around the country, as you mentioned. And so, you know, so far, most of the cases seem like they're pretty mild. But in some cases, people do get pretty sick and there have even been some deaths reported. Joining us now is Rob Stein, health correspondent at NPR. Thanks for joining us, Rob. My pleasure. You know, now as more and more people are getting vaccinated, you know, the numbers are in the millions now. We are starting to see a lot of these more, you know, rarer occurrences. Obviously, we've been hearing about things with Johnson & Johnson and their vaccine in these very rare instances of blood clots. We'll see all that figured out. But we're also starting to see some breakthrough cases of COVID. People who have gotten vaccinated and still get COVID-19. Still, the numbers are pretty low, but we're seeing states uh, like Michigan, uh, Florida, I think, and Washington report a few hundred cases of this. And the CDC is uh, looking into it to see why this might be happening. Uh, so, Rob, tell us a little bit about what we're learning. That's right. As you said, you know, the vaccine has been administered to something more than 75 million people have now been fully vaccinated in the United States. And it's unclear how often this phenomenon occurs known as a vaccine breakthrough. But there have been hundreds of cases reported around the country, as you mentioned. And so, you know, so far, most of the cases seem like they're pretty mild. But in some cases, people do get pretty sick and there have even been some deaths reported. So it's something that's not unexpected, but it's something that scientists would like to know more about to figure out if there's a way to prevent happening. And these deaths, as you noted in the article, they have been in older Americans that, you know, we know the virus uh, attacks them in, in a different way. So some of those uh, instances of death have been in elderly people. And, you know, the reason why we talk about these things is you see a lot of headlines. They can be misleading sometimes. And you have to kind of dig into it to see how rare it is and how expected it is. You know, when we talk about the efficacy of vaccines, especially with Pfizer and Moderna, they were up in the high 90s, the mid 90s, a real world test. They said, you know, right about 90 percent, but that's not 100 percent. So these reinfections, these breakthroughs are expected. No vaccine is perfect. Every vaccine fails in, in some cases. So nobody was expecting this vaccine to be 100 percent protective either. In fact, you know, the studies show that they work really well. They seem to protect people against infection at about 80 percent of the time. They protect people against getting really sick or even dying in excess of 94, 95 percent of the time. But that's not 100 percent of the time. So, you know, it doesn't work in every single case. And so what's reassuring is that even when people 
do seem to get infected when they've been vaccinated, it does seem like their infections tend to be more mild for the most part. So it does perhaps offer them some protection. But as you said, you know, it doesn't always work. And so scientists are trying to figure out, you know, if there is anything that can be done to boost the effectiveness even higher. And so there's a variety of possibilities. One possibility is maybe some people just don't mount as robust an immune response as other people. That could be especially true in older people who we know don't tend to respond as strongly to vaccination. So it could be why we're seeing that happen more in that population. It could be that maybe it's the amount of virus that people are exposed to initially. If they're exposed to a high amount of a virus, maybe it's so much that it overcomes the protection that the vaccine provides. And a third possibility are the, you know, the variants, which we know are for sure more contagious. And there's some evidence that they may be able to evade the vaccines more easily. Uh, it's unclear how often that happens, but it could be a possibility that that's what's going on in some cases. Yeah. Or it could be a combination of all those factors. Right. Viral load versus variant seems to be where uh, you know a lot of the focus will probably be because as people get vaccinated, they feel a little more comfortable, maybe not wearing the mask, uh, letting their guard down a little bit. But you could be in a situation where the viral load is especially high in your surroundings, or as you mentioned, the variants constantly changing and could be evading some of the vaccines. But, you know, just to kind of uh, uh, prove the point of uh, some of these real world studies that have been done so far, there was a, a, a study done in UC San Diego where they looked at healthcare workers who were fully vaccinated. And between December 2020 to February 2021, there was 36,000 healthcare workers they looked at. Less than 1% got reinfected. And, and as you mentioned earlier, the cases were more mild than you know, if they had not been vaccinated. In your story, right. you did talk about an elderly woman who, who got reinfected. Tell me a little bit about her story. Yes, yes. As you said, the, I think that's an important point to make, that if, the, if these breakthrough infections occur, the thinking right now is they are very, very, very rare. And, and that for most people, there is some protection. But yeah, I did speak to a woman. Her name is Ginger Eatman. She's 73. She lives in Dallas, Georgia. You know, she got uh, two shots of the Pfizer vaccine and she thought she was protected and didn't have anything to worry about. But she continued to be careful. You know, she kept wearing her mask. She kept using hand sanitizer. She kept, you know, wiping down the grocery carts with wipes. But a few weeks after her second dose, she started to feel a scratchy throat, and then she got congested, and then she started coughing, and she ended up getting a test after she lost her sense of smell, and it turned out it came back positive, you know, and she was really surprised, and she thought she was good to go. But, you know, lucky for her, she didn't get that sick. She was only sick for about 10 days, and then she recovered, and she's still very grateful that she got vaccinated because she had some friends at her church who did not and weren't so lucky. They got infected, and they ended up dying from COVID. So, you know, she's trying to get the message out that these vaccines aren't perfect, but it's better to get vaccinated than to not, but you have to still be careful even if you are vaccinated. And I think it's important also to make the distinction between getting infected and, and reinfection. There's no evidence that people who have been vaccinated can get infected twice. There is some evidence that they could get infected for the first time because the vaccine just didn't work for, in their case. But it is, the, you know, the message is consistent that people should, even if they've been vaccinated, they shouldn't let down their guard. They should keep wearing those masks. They should keep socially distancing. You know, they have some protection, but they're not completely protected. Rob Stein, health correspondent at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.